one day you are all going to die. Positive, encouraging the Grove Church. <laughs> Talking about death is something that is taboo in our society. Uh, we're not supposed to mention it. <clears throat> we're not supposed to talk about it. Uh, it makes us uncomfortable, the thought of it. We try to push it away. Uh, let's, let's talk about something else. Even if you look at movies, some people have noted, if you watch movies, even deaths on screen or, or tragic, unfortunate deaths by a mafia hitman or some tragedy, uh, it is not the natural process of aging and, and death that waits all of us. We have, we have, as a culture, kind of pushed this out of sight and out of mind. In the 1950s, one British sociologist noted that there was a taboo subject in the 19th century in which uh, so much of Western society didn't talk about sex. He noted that in the 20th century, he felt like that too, taboo had shifted to death. There were so many in our culture, push it away. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. And yet, unless Christ returns, it is the end of us all. It's what we will all face. So how are we to think about death? What does the Bible mention about death? And what does that have to do with our lives today? Well, I would make the contention that so many of us live life trying to find meaning in this life. If we push death away, functionally what that does is tell us that this world is what we have. And we will put all of our effort into finding some sort of purpose, some sort of satisfaction, and some sort of meaning in the things around us. And the world, the enemy, Satan, and all of his strategy would love for us to continue that ploy, whether a Christian or not. Here's fame. If you can be significant enough, then you'll find purpose, find meaning. Here's youth. Kind of this extravagance in energy and life and vitality and health. I'm just 35, but already my hip hurts when I get out of bed in the morning. Youth is fleeting. Beauty. Now you see this in, in Hollywood and around the country, but especially in Hollywood, people trying to hold on to these societal norms for beauty as they age, trying to keep the natural process of, of aging from happening. And if you see some of these people that are doing this, it looks so unnatural and is the opposite of what they're trying to accomplish. You see pictures of Goldie Hawn or Madonna today. Uh, people that are holding on, trying to hold on to beauty they had decades ago, it's, it's gone. It's fleeting. There's a song that we sing, we'll sing it after the service, that touches on this exact thing that fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. We try to hold on to wealth or possessions or stuff. We're trying to clamor for something in this world to find significance and meaning. But apart from Christ, oh, friends, I would say we are all on an unresolved quest for that meaning. No matter what we find, it may, it may feel good for a moment, but it won't last throughout the entirety of our life, and it certainly won't last for eternity. You may be in your 20s or 30s and go, you know what, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to go on trips to Fiji with my friend, and I'm going to take wonderful Instagram photos, and it is going to be the life. I'm going to live the dream. And let me tell you, it will be fun. I would love to go to Fiji. That sounds wonderful. 
But if you push off then um, some of these things that God has uh, placed here and designed in life and go, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be married. I don't want to have kids. I'm, I'm going to live my life for me. And I'm going to, you know, you only live once YOLO. So I'm going to, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to do crazy. I'm going to jump out of an airplane. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to live. You only live once. So I'm going to live life on the edge. One, I've heard one person point this out, that that phrase, YOLO, you only live once, it drives people to do like crazy things, right? You only live once, let's live life on the edge. It's like, shouldn't it have the opposite impact on your life? You only live once, I'm going to wear a seatbelt. <laughs> Be very cautious. Oh, but friends, if you live right now all that you want, all that you could desire, pushing off again, going, oh, I'm not going to get married. I don't want to have any kids. I I'm going I'm to live for me. I'm going to do what I want to do now. Uh, friends, where will that get you when you're 74 years old in Thanksgiving? It's fleeting. It doesn't last. And so where does this quest for meaning lead us to? And how can death give us clarity to it all? Oh, friends, that's really the question that David gets to in our psalm this morning in Psalm 39. We'll be looking at the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 13, psalm written by David. As we look and continue, now as we take a break through 1 Peter, we've gotten through the first major section of 1 Peter in the spring. We're taking a break over the summer, looking at a different psalm uh, every week this summer, and we'll jump back into 1 Peter, pick up the rest of the book in the fall. Uh, and I love the psalms. We're getting into this rhythm as a church every summer, just spending a summer in the psalms. Because there is a, a uniqueness to the Psalms, as the Psalms have a way of connecting with all of us, no matter where we may be. No matter what human emotion you're experiencing right now, you'll find it in the Psalms. Lament, as Peter talked about last week in Psalm 13. Joy, happiness, despair, anger. A desire for vindication, oh, it doesn't matter where it is, the feelings of betrayal, it doesn't matter where you are right now, you will find that emotion in the Psalms. It's, it covers the full spectrum of the human experience. Athanasius was a 4th century Christian, he put it this way, most of the scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And so as we look at the Psalms this morning, Psalm 39, let's consider, again, how death may give us clarity. As we look at this Psalm, there's four different things, four different sections we walk through this I want us to see. The first, we'll see the wisdom of silence. The wisdom of silence, we'll see that in verses 1 through 3. Second, we'll see the brevity of life in verses 4 through 6. The brevity of life. Third, then, we'll find the source of hope, verses 7 through 11. The source of hope. And finally... We'll see the cry of sojourners, verses 12 and 13, the cry of sojourners. First, the wisdom of silence, verses 1 through 3. Look at, at this first verses here in the Psalm 39. David writes, for the choir director for Jeduthun, a Psalm of David, I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a, a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent, even from speaking good, and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me. As I mused, a fire burned, and I spoke then with my tongue. So David begins this psalm here, and in, in the 
subscript here for the choir director. He's writing this to the worship leader in Jerusalem, to Jeduthun. He's a, a character that's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. We've seen him first mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 41 and 42. He's also mentioned in other subscripts in um, Psalm 62 and Psalm 77. Uh, Jeduthun was installed as the choir director, the one leading the musical worship of Israel after the ark was returned in 1 Chronicles. So Jeduthun was up there. He was, he was playing the keyboard. He's leading the, leading the people of Israel in musical worship every uh, single week. And while they may not have a keyboard, we do see his instruments of choice was the trumpet and the cymbals in 1 Chronicles 7, 16. Uh, so if you are a trumpeteer and are a good cymbal player, the worship team is taking auditions um, as we hope to be uh, obedient to God's word. And this is Jeduthun as David is writing this psalm to him to be sung then by God's people. And so what is David hoping to communicate? Well, he begins here with the wisdom of silence in these first three verses. Do you hear David describing what he's aiming at here? His aim in these first three verses is to say, I'm not going to speak. Right? I will guard my ways. Well, what's that mean? Well, I'm guarding my ways. Why? So that I may not sin with my tongue. David is not wanting to sin with what? In particular, with his tongue, with what he says. He's going to guard his mouth with a muzzle. He's speechless. He's quiet. He keeps silent, even from speaking good. Some other translations say, even though it may be in vain. David's saying, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to, I'm going to stay quiet. And what are his two reasons for staying quiet? Well, he said there in verse 1, so that he may not sin with his tongue. And two, because there in verse one, the wicked are in his presence. David is being wise here as he's surrounded by wicked people, people who do not follow, who do not worship God. And David knows that there can be a quickness in his words that may not only hurt other people, but actually sin against God. So David goes, okay, let me, let me keep back. Let me make sure that I'm not saying something I'm not supposed to be saying. Let me stay silent. Let me, in wisdom, um, be sure to keep quiet as the wicked are around me in my presence. Now, you notice in these first three verses, David doesn't describe what the wicked people are doing. In so many psalms, the psalm writer is describing uh, maybe um, persecution, maybe anger, uh, maybe mocking from the wicked. We don't get any of that here in these first three verses. All we get is that they're there in his presence. So we don't entirely know what these wicked people are doing. Are they doing something to David? Is, is he then rising up and wanting to speak out against them for what they're doing to him? I don't think so. And the reason why, and we'll get into the rest of the theme of the psalm, but I think more so what's happening to David here is he's just looking around and observing the wicked around him. And what is happening in their lives. Right, in Psalm 73, there's a similar situation where Asaph is writing a psalm. And he says this, 73, Psalm 73 verse 3, he said, I envied the arrogant because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looked around and he saw people that didn't love God and it seemed like their life was a lot better than his. Oh, I envied the arrogant because I saw their prosperity. He keeps going. He says, they have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. 
continues. He says that they've set their mouths against heaven. Their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. And the wicked say, well, how can God know? How does the Most High know everything? And Asaph says, look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. I think that David is having a similar experience to Asaph here. And we'll get, again, we'll look at the rest of the reason why. What I want to do is pull, again, this experience, not only of Asaph, but of ourselves. I think David as well. As he's looking at the wicked in his presence, the wicked are prospering, I think, more than he is. And there is this envy rising up in him. He wants to say something against him, but he can feel that what is rising in him is not holy, but it's actually sinful. So in wisdom, he goes, I need to not say anything. Let me delete the Facebook post. Let me erase the text. Let me stay silent for a moment. But friends, very practically, there's a lot of wisdom in this. I know that I have found myself to get into a lot of trouble when I just say a lot. And I continue to speak. Emotions may be rising in the middle of conflict or an argument. I just continue to talk. The words just keep coming out. There's not any break. And I have just found an incredibly helpful practice and wisdom in being able to go, let me just stop talking for a little bit. Let me just step back. Let my emotions kind of settle. Let me, let me uh, step into silence and just stop. Uh, friends, there's certainly wisdom in, in recognizing the importance of silence. David maybe feels the same thing. He looks around the wicked. He's beginning to feel these similar things. He's wanting to speak. Uh, friends, how true is that experience? We look around the world... And it feels like other people have so much more than we do. Things seem to be going so much better for them. They're able to go on that trip to Fiji. They got that promotion. They're able to, as grandparents, pay for a whole trip for their family. I, I can't do that. I wish I could do that. Their lives seem to be so much better. It ratchets up then whenever we see this happening to people that aren't following Jesus. Not even so much anger towards them, but looking at their lives, looking at ours, looking back at God and going, God, what's the deal? How come they're, how come they're getting everything? And I feel like I'm just trying to make it. This was Asaph's question in verse 13 at the end of that kind of tirade of looking at all the good stuff of the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase their wealth. Here's his question in verse 13. Well, did I then purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? God, did I not strive for holiness, wanting to worship you and follow you for nothing? I'm afflicted all day long. I'm punished every morning. How come everything's going right for them and bad for me? Oh, friends, I think this is part of the similar experience that David's getting to. As he looks at the wicked, he's muzzling his mouth, keeping there from being silence. Identifying that envy that's rising and then asking the question, what do I need to say to myself in this moment? How do I address this desire I have, this envy I have, and maybe bitterness even towards God that everyone else is getting what I always wanted and I can't get it? How do we address it? Well, friends, David answer, David's answer is in verses 4 through 6. It's reminding himself of the brevity of life. You hear at the end of verse 3 that he was 
quiet. And as he was quiet, there was this fire growing within him, this fire that was burning. And so finally, verse 3, he speaks. He'd been silent, but he speaks. What does he speak? Verses 4 through 6, the brevity of life. Here is his prayer. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you've made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. You hear now David's answer to his concern, to this sin that he was feeling, this fire that was growing in him, was to then look and go, oh, that's right, I'm going to die. God, and would you help me remember that? You hear that prayer in verse 4? Lord, make me aware of my end. God, would you help me remember that I must die? How many of us pray a prayer like that? Oh, but friends, it brings so much clarity. Remember your death. Remember that you must die. The Latin phrase is the phrase memento mori. And here's what we've done with things like that. Again, as we push death away, things like that, remembering that we must die, feel like uh, haunted aberrations that we shouldn't touch. Memento Mori is the name of the gift shop right next to Haunted Mansion at Disney World. That's where we've relegated this thought. Remember that you must die? That goes next to the Haunted Mansion. We don't think about that stuff. Friends, that is a command in Psalm 39 verse 4. It's a prayer, Lord, make me aware of my end. Help me remember my death. Why? Not only my end, but help me know the measure of my days, the number of my days. How long do I have between now and then? Oh God, when I see that, then I will know how short-lived I am. This is the thrust of David's prayer. And friend, it's, I think, a helpful correction in our culture to a prayer that we need to pray as well. And a lens that we should look through this life with. As we look around and we see maybe all these people getting all this stuff, let us remind ourselves, oh God, help me remember that my days will end. That this is just a vapor. Now you hear the description in verse 5? God, this whole life that I have here, it's just inches long. The Hebrew word is a hand's breadth. It was the space of the four fingers. It was one of the smallest measurements in ancient Israel. Got my whole life just a few inches. My whole lifespan, it says nothing compared to the eternal God. And every human being stands as only a vapor. Right? James picks up on the same thing as Rod read earlier, that our life is a vapor. It's here and it's gone. Verse 6, a person goes about like a mere shadow, like a phantom. In just a moment. This is David's awareness, the prayer to realize this, and then the, all the different ways in which he reminds himself, okay, we're just here for inches. My lifespan is as nothing, only a vapor. It's a mere shadow. God, it's here and it's gone in a moment. We want to think that we will live forever. We want to push it away and act like we just have immortality and eternity ahead of us. And certainly we do in Christ. But we think in this life, 
pushing off our death and think that we have time here forever. And so trying to accumulate whatever it is we can here. Friends, what death does is it gives us the right perspective to realize that if we spend all of our energy trying to gather up stuff in this world, that when we die, we will realize that it was all meaningless. This is the point of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was one of the wealthiest people in ancient Israel. He had everything you could imagine. Other countries were coming to him for wisdom. He had everything a person could dream of. God had given it to him. He then writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And here is his conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Written by the guy who had it all. Friends, one of the great lies the enemy tries to sell us in a consumeristic culture is if we just had more, then we'd be happy. Ecclesiastes is so helpful in this. By helping us hear from somebody who had everything and showing us, oh, it's all meaningless. It can't give us what it promises. I told this story before, and I'm sure Tom Brady had no idea how many sermon illustrations he'd come up in. But Tom Brady was once interviewed after he won, I don't know, like his 14th Super Bowl. I don't know. I can't count anymore. A quarterback for the New England Patriots and later the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, just, uh, he is the greatest quarterback of all time. There's just honestly no debate. Um, not only for his stats, but just how much he won, how often he won. He was married to a supermodel. I mean, he, he had everything. He developed this incredibly healthy diet. He would eat avocado ice cream. It just it was odd, but it worked for him. And after one Super Bowl, I can't remember again which one it was, third or fourth, uh, he was in an interview with 60 Minutes and somebody asked him what it was like. like. This is what you've dreamed. This is what every boy dreams of. To be the quarterback of a Super Bowl winning team. And you've done it multiple times now. Tom, what's it like? And his response? I just thought it would mean more than this. But friends, one of the things that God gives us in Ecclesiastes and in that interview with Tom Brady and in so many other ways in which people have a lot, wealth, money, fame, just look at how unhappy Hollywood is. Fame and beauty and wealth will not bring happiness. It's meaningless. And death reveals it because we ain't taking it with us. And not only are we not taking it with us, David points out that we gather possessions without knowing who will get them. We can write a will, but friends, we do not know what will happen to everything we've accumulated here. And we rush around in vain, trying to find significance and stuff. Friends, this was written in ancient Israel. I'm not sure there's a more um, relevant sentence that describes the American culture and hustle. They rush around in vain. And friends, this is a temptation for us all. To push death away and to spend our lives busy and distracted trying to gather stuff, whatever it may be. God, would you help us be aware of our end? To remember our death. To see how short-lived this thing is. To help us find meaning and significance because we're all going to face death in the end. And so God, would you help us not rush around then in vain? Because death is coming for us all. So we may get to this point and go, well, this is fairly depressing, David. No matter how hard you work, everything you gain is meaningless here. 
and then one day you'll die. Well, friends, the psalm doesn't end in verse 6. Because there is this question that should start arising in us saying, okay, well, if nothing in this world can satisfy this longing in my heart, then what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to look? Who am I supposed to wait for? Who am I supposed to hope in? What am I supposed to hope for? That's the question then that David gets to now uh, here in verses 7 through 11, this source of hope. He asked the question, now Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. So would you rescue me from all my transgressions? Do not make me the taunt of fools. I'm speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me because of the force of your hand. I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. David turns now to the source then of hope. Okay, if nothing in this world can come with us, if we're collecting it in vanity apart from God, and then one day we all die, then what are we waiting for? Where can we find meaning? Where can we find purpose? Where can we find hope? And David turns our eyes from this world and fixes it on God alone. What do I wait for? Verse 7, my hope is in you. David doesn't say, God, my hope is in more stuff that you can give me. God, I will believe in you so that you will then give me more stuff and then I'll be happy. No, his hope is not in the gift. His hope is in the giver. Oh God, my hope is in you. Therefore, no matter what others may have, God, correct my heart to help me see that one day it all ends. That because of Adam, every single one of us dies. Sin has entered into this world and there's an end to all this stuff. Oh God, but there is not an end to you. Fix my hope on you and in you alone. Friends, this is the refrain of the Psalms over and over and over again. That no matter what situation we may be in, the Psalms correct our hearts to fix us back on God and entering into His presence. That's our greatest good here. Not what we may have, not what we may own, not the comforts or pleasures of this world, but in God Himself. This is the same place that Asaph got to in Psalm 73. He knew the reality that he was embittered and his innermost being was wounded. This is Psalm 73, 21. He then says, I was stupid and didn't understand. Again, the Psalms are just really honest. God, I was an unthinking animal towards you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, friends, hear this. God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell all about what you do. Friends, you hear the great good for Asaph. He was looking around at all the prosperity of God, of of the wicked. 
All the stuff that they had. He felt the envy in him. He felt embittered towards God. God, was I innocent for nothing? Did I strive for holiness for nothing? They have it all. I'm struggling every day. But Asaph gets to the right place in his heart to help him see, oh no, the great good of my life is not what is around me, but who has me. He is my greatest good. His nearness is my good. His presence is my good. And so what separates us from His presence? What pushes us away from His presence? What can numb our affections for His presence? It's sin in our hearts. And so what death does is death gives us clarity to go, okay, this stuff is just vanity. Lord, my hope is in You. And the great hindrance to you is not anything around me. It's sin within me. And so you notice David's psalm then in verse 39 shifts from looking around and it looks now at repentance in his own heart. God, my hope is in you. So would you rescue me from all my transgressions? He's not asking for prayer for rescue from the, from the wicked, from the oppression, for any onslaught they may be bringing. He's asking for rescue from his transgressions, from his sins. He realizes now the great barrier to his good is not more money. It's not more stuff. It's not a more comfortable life. It's a nearness to God. And what is pushing him away is his sin. So God, would you rescue me? From all my transgressions. And he's speechless again. If he was at the beginning, you find him speechless again, not saying anything. I do not open my mouth, verse 9, because of what you had done. David finds himself now in a place of repentance, owning his sin entirely, bringing it to God, saying, God, I've got no excuses, I have no justification, I'm not going to try to explain it away. He brings it before the Lord and he is silent. Oh, friends, this is the great mark of David, I think. It's his repentant heart. He's honest, and he owns it all. If you look at the story of David, David did some awful things. And yet David was considered a man after God's own heart. You look at the king just before David, King Saul. Saul did some things as well, but honestly, in comparison, if you look at the actions, not as bad as David. So why did God remove the throne from Saul, give it to David, and then give David the name as a man after God's own heart, inspiring him to write so many of the Psalms that we find comfort today? Well, friends, I think the answer is because David, while he sinned greatly, he knew God's mercy was even greater. And it drove him to a point where he could be repentant and own in entirety the consequences of his sin, and not trying to explain or justify or excuse it away. Psalm 51 shows us this. It's David's psalm of repentance. After all that he had done with Bathsheba, after all he had done in murdering Bathsheba's husband, after he'd gotten her pregnant, he's called out, and he doesn't explain it away. He just simply responds when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. He responds and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. And he is silent, speechless. My friends, I think the mark of a Christian is not perfection, it's repentance. God has used messed up people throughout his scriptures and throughout church history. 
It's not about shiny, perfect people. It's about those who know their brokenness and come fully to God without excuse, owning our sin in repentance. Lord, I have sinned against you. Would you forgive me? David's also praying here for the discipline that he's receiving from God. You hear this in verse 10, removing the torment from me, the force of your hand. God, I'm finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity. He's praying this discipline would be lifted. And this is something else we need to understand, that God disciplines those He loves. This is not strictly angry punishment. Uh, This is discipline to help those that He loves be formed more into the image of His Son and to set their hope on Him. As we see in verse 11, what his discipline is doing, it's consuming like a moth what is precious to him. That David maybe has his heart set on some of these things in the world, and God in his discipline is making those things disappear. Consuming them like a moth. You ever touch a moth's wings? They vanish. Consumed like a moth, God in his kindness is taking these idols away from those whom he loves. And is it painful? Of course that's what Hebrews says. Discipline is always painful walking through it, but it produces good fruit. In love, a father disciplines those he loves. God's goal for you in this life is not for you to be comfortable. It's for you to be like Jesus. And friends, sometimes that is through comfort and blessing, and sometimes it's through discipline. But as we trust in our Father as we walk in this life, we know His heart for us. And we know our end and everything in our life, both for our good and for His glory, as He leads us to look more like Him. The source of our hope is not in the stuff around us. The source of our hope is in Him and in Him alone. Paul picks up on the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He's writing to Timothy, a young pastor. And he says this, Timothy, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. And so he's telling him there's a a tendency then, okay, well, maybe you hear this and there's certainly a tendency for, for us to look at others and want what others have. But maybe you're here and God has given you a lot of wealth. And maybe you're hearing this sermon like, oh, wait a second, am I supposed to get, am I doing something wrong? Am I the wicked that God is prospering? Now, friends, wealth and money in of itself is not evil. Money is not evil. The New Testament says that the love of money is what is evil. We've misquoted that verse. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And so Paul here is helping Timothy. How do you then do you instruct those who are rich in the present age? He tells them, don't be arrogant and teach them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. If you have money, friends, do not set your hope on it. It is uncertain. 2008 taught us this. In a moment, we could look at the notifications on our phone and a stock market that you do not control may plummet. And your investments and your 401k may now be worthless from the day that was before. Friends, there is certainly uncertainty in wealth. Do not set your hope on that. Oh, but set your hope on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. This is Paul's instruction. Don't set your heart on the uncertainty of wealth. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. He is the source of our hope, not the stuff around us. 
David knew this. Okay, my life is brief. Help me number my days. Help me live with that urgency and that kind of clarity. God, help me to see what's really important in this life. And that is this sin that is keeping me from you. So God, would you forgive me? Would you remove this discipline? Because my hope is not in the stuff around me. It is in you and in you alone. And that repentance is what leads him then into God's presence. I was um, talking with uh, two of my kids last week, and they were trying to convince me of the science. Apparently, this is new research I haven't seen, but the science of how ice cream cures headaches. I don't know if there's a new journal. Some people may have read that same journal as well. I haven't seen it yet. The theory goes like this, that a headache is caused by the heat in your body. It, it causes your head to begin to hurt. The way to offset that is to eat something cold, particularly ice cream. It's a, it's a particularly good temperature to offset that heat. And then your headache just disappears. If your headache isn't as bad, you can have a little bit hotter ice cream. It, it'll still do the trick. But it also, my, uh, my son told me, also works if your throat hurts. Again, a wonderful uh, medicine ice cream is. The whole conversation led to their conclusion that there is no medicine like ice cream. <laughs> it was convincing. It was persuasive. We all had a bowl. We were all happier. <laughs> Friends, what David is, is helping us see right here is if his hope is set on God and his sin is keeping them him from that presence, from that, the, the awareness of God's love towards him. God's love isn't changing, but his awareness of his love is muted and numbed by his sin. You think about clouds. If you walk out and it's cloudy and you don't feel the sun's rays, it's not because the sun isn't shining. It's because we don't feel them. There's something blocking them. Friends, God's love isn't shifted from you in sin, but sin like clouds keeps us from feeling the warmth of his affection. And so what then draws us back into his presence, clears the skies? Friends, it's repentance that owns our sin and walks in the grace and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ. There is, perhaps said better, no medicine like repentance. Friends, as it solves our greatest problem, sin, not the stuff around us. And David ends in verse 11 the same way that he did earlier. Every human being is only a vapor. We're here and then we're gone. And that begins to give him a different outlook on his life here. And gives him a different prayer here in verses 12 through 13 as we see now the cry of the sojourners. David now prays again. He says, Lord, hear my prayer. And listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears. For I'm here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. And turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. David prays the same thing three different ways. Hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears. Same thing, but in three different ways. Two of them notice he's asking God to hear and to listen. But the third one, he's asking God to do something. Don't be silent. Say something. Intervene. Speak. God, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for help. Don't be silent at my tears. There's this longing welling up in David as he feels the brokenness of the world that he's in. And as it cries, as that cry builds, David then acknowledges the reality of his existence. And what's the way that he describes his life then as a worshiper of God, as a worshiper of Yahweh in verse 12? 
He says, I'm just here with you as an alien, as a temporary resident, as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as an exile. Understanding with now new clarity what death has brought him. Oh, he's just short-lived here. All the stuff in this world can't satisfy his longing. He can't even bring it with him after he dies. And he doesn't know what's going to happen to it after he dies. But on the other side, he understands that he is headed to a better land. He's an alien here, a temporary resident here. An exile here. The only other place this, uh, this um, psalm is translated into, uh, into Greek. There's a Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. For those who are reading Greek, they could uh, read it and understand it uh, in, the, in the Greek. That these two words, alien temporary resident, translated in the Greek, the only other time they're paired together is in 1 Peter 2.11. We talked about a couple weeks ago. That Peter's understanding of the life of every Christian, it goes back even to David here. As he recognizes this world is broken and as it stands, it's not my home. And he is on his way as a pilgrim, as a sojourner to a better world, to a better land, to a promised land. Just as all his ancestors before him were. So we see in Hebrews 11, author says the same thing. Those final prayer, verse 13. So then God, would you turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. David prays that the wrath-filled gaze of God, his judge, as he sinned against God, would turn away from him. Those consequences and discipline would lift. And the old covenant, the mechanism for that to happen, for God's justice to be satisfied, to be placed on another, the mechanism for that to happen was through the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, as there would be a sacrifice for sin in the place of sinners like David and like all of us. Those sins were repeated every day at the temple because people were sinning every day. And David prayed that God angry, God's angry gaze, his wrathful gaze would, would turn. Oh, but friends, that entire sacrificial system, every lamb that was slaughtered in the place of a sinful person, every innocent lamb that was killed in the place of a sinful human being was pointing towards something greater was pointing towards a moment when we wouldn't have to pray verse 13 over and over again. But the reality that there was coming a day whenever there would be another innocent lamb who would live a sinless life, who then would go to his own death and he would go in silence. He wouldn't say a word either. And as he faced his end, as he faced his death, he then stood in the place of sinners. And God's angry gaze is shifted from every Christian and it was fixed on Jesus Christ. Friends, as we pray this prayer today on this side of the cross, the way that God has answered this prayer in 13, that we can be confident that his angry gaze is no longer fixed on us, is because it has been turned, it was fixed on Jesus. 2,000 years ago. That our sin, this sin that we're asking for forgiveness for, was taken from us and placed on Him. And He stood in the place of sinners. And He was crushed for our sin. He was pierced for our iniquity. And the angry, God-forsaken gaze of the Father was placed on Him. And Jesus cries out then from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Oh, and friends, for every person that has trusted in Jesus, we can then understand and rest in the confidence that there is now no condemnation for us because it's been given to Christ instead. He has been forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He has been killed so that we might find life. He was slaughtered so that we might be raised to life one day. That we could pray, Lord, we come with our sin and we know that it deserves the angry, wrath-filled gaze of a judge looking at someone who's rebelled against you. Oh, but praise God that my sin, I bear it no more, but it has been nailed to the cross. And it has been turned towards Him and turned away from us forever. That we will never experience that because of the Lamb that died in our place. Oh, but friends, the other reality that that shows us is that it gives us a newfound boldness as we come back and stare death right in the face. Because certainly death gives everyone clarity about what's important in life. Oh, but friends, for the Christian, there's a different way that you can look at death. That as we see, yes, our brevity, we know our end, we know that our days are numbered. Friends, we also know that death's days are numbered as well. That there will be a day when Christ returns and death will be dead forever. Death will be erased, swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And death will be no more. That this is a temporary reality as God's people look at death. And so, yes, we acknowledge the brokenness of this world. We see the way that death impacts us and how it takes what we love and loss and it it brings vanity and futility to what we've accomplished. Oh, but friends, in Christ, we can look at death square in the faith and go, Oh, death, where is your sting now? Where is your victory? Because my Jesus whom I am now one with, went toe-to-toe with you, and he walked out victorious. And what that means is for all those in Christ, that is our future as well. Death becomes a doorway to everlasting life. It is not the end, it's the beginning. It leads us and transports us into the presence of God, which is our greatest good. That when we close our eyes in death, we are absent then from the body, but present with the Lord. Death becomes the Uber driver that takes us to our greatest treasure. That doesn't take away then the pain and the hurt of death, but we're able to acknowledge with boldness and with confidence, this is but a temporary reality. And it is not the final word in our life. And we can then not have to push death to the margins that we don't look at it. But we can look at it square in the face with a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we look at death, it can begin to change the way that we live our life today. Showing us what is important, living with an urgency, helping us not getting caught up in the rush of vain things, trying to gather for ourselves what we can't bring with us. We don't have to ignore it. We can look at it because it, is, it has been finished. It has been defeated. Death is beaten once and for all. Death was once our great opponent. You notice the past tense of that song we sang earlier? It was our great opponent. Oh, but friends, it is no longer.
If you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel this pull to try to find meaning in this life and you begin to stare your death square in the face, oh friends, I hope you hear the extension of hope that your soul is longing for in the person of Jesus Christ, the one that this psalm was pointing to, to a greater David who's given us life and hope over death. You don't have to do anything to earn his love. You trust him, follow him, have faith, believe. What does that mean? Uh, It means that you believe Jesus is who he said he is and you go, okay, I'll follow you. I don't have everything together, but I'll follow you. And friends, when you do that, this life, this hope is yours. It's given to you. That search for meaning that you've been looking for, oh friends, it ends the cross. It ends with Jesus. As he then gives you not only that meaning, that hope, and that life, but the victory over the thing that none of us can escape as the end of all of us. And this is our great hope, our living hope. As fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, we're confident that our God stays with us forever. Let's pray.